you're listening to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Outra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name's Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. So for Celiac Awareness Week, I'm delighted to be chatting to an award-winning gastroenterology dietitian all about this hot topic of having gluten-free foods on prescription. Is it really necessary? Is there an element of postcode lottery involved? And should it be based on income? Listen on to the episode to hear more about this. Research highlights that around one in 100 people in the UK live with celiac disease. As we know, the management of celiac disease requires a strict gluten-free diet, but with the cheapest gluten-free loaf being over seven times more expensive than a regular loaf of bread, and given the current cost of living crisis, the question as to whether gluten-free foods should be accessible on prescription is an important one to raise. To discuss this topic, I'm delighted to be joined by the brilliant celiac dietitian, Christian Costas-Batley. Christian, it's great to have you with us. And without further ado, I'll hand over to you to tell us more about yourself. Thanks for that, Harriet. You know, as, as, as you mentioned, I'm a gastroenterology dietitian specializing in celiac disease. I work at Bradford Teaching Hospitals, NHS Foundation Trust, over where I run a dietitian led celiac service where you know I'm very lucky to run this service with the support of our amazing gastroenterologist and you know that's why it's a privilege to be here to to be able to share a lot of information about you know some of the work we've been doing but also um, to have this important conversation and I was lucky enough to build this service back in 2019 um, and in 2020 I was awarded with the Guts UK and Dr. Falk recognition award for improving patient care through gastroenterology with the dietitian led service and I've been able to win a couple of other awards for my work in celiac disease, which goes to show I, I definitely can't get enough of, of celiac disease. Um, and that's why it's my main area of interest. But I'm also interested in, you know, uh, gluten-related disorders, irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease. But I love sharing, you know, information about celiac disease on social media. And that's why I'm really happy to share this, especially for Celiac Awareness Week. Love doing things there. I think it's such an important week. And also love doing things around service development um, and also guest lecturing to teach students about service development. And, and celiac disease. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Christian. It's great to have you with us. Now, let's get started with a few quickfire questions to get to know you a little better. So, my first question to you is: Tell us what your go-to coffee order would be. Um, so, some people might be surprised, but I don't actually have a go-to coffee order because I don't drink much coffee at all. Uh, but I think I've just never grown up with, you know, with, with hot drinks as much and never particularly like that. I think I'm a bit sensitive to caffeine too. So if I have a coffee after 1 p.m., I probably won't be able to sleep through a night. I'm almost too wired as it is, I think. <laughs> so, but yeah, if, if, if I do have one, I might have something like a mocha. I quite like a bit of that chocolate taste in it too. So there, there's one. Interesting. Well, my next question to you is tell us about a personal or professional highlight from the past month. So I think because it's so recent, I'm going to go for a personal one. So um, I've I've just pretty much come back from a 12 day cruise in the in the Caribbean, which has been amazing. I've never done a cruise before, but it was amazing. Stopped in so many cool places, swimming with pigs in Bahamas. I never thought I'd I'd be doing something like. Uh, but yeah, lo loads of amazing things with my girlfriend. And I think it was great, uh, you know, some great downtime and I love traveling too. So it kind of ticked all the boxes uh, on a personal level, 100%. Wow. I mean, that that's incredible. That sounds amazing. Um, my next question might be hard for you to answer because I don't know if you can beat a cruise in the Caribbean, but tell us about one thing that you're looking forward to this summer. Yeah, so, so definitely that that's my summer holiday is gone already. <laughs> Pretty much. So, so yeah, I'd say that for this summer it'll be it'll be more on a on a geeky level, more of a professional level. I'm really excited for some of the projects to hopefully flourish. So, so I'm I'm trying. I'm in the final stages of getting some work published on a on a scientific journal. So I'm really excited for that, and I think that'll really highlight the value of dietitians working in celiac disease. I'm really keen on that. I've had some great news to present a poster at the British Society of Gastroenterology. So really excited about doing that doing that in June. And I'll also be, and you know, in, end of May, a bit early, but um, I'll be speaking at the Sheffield Gastroenterology Symposium there, talking about celiac disease, dietitian-led celiac service I run at, at Bradford too. So, so a lot of events there to highlight celiac disease, the impact of dietitians too. So I'm really excited about that because that always brings, you know, fantastic conversation, networking opportunities and opportunities to really push the, the profession forward. So, so very excited about that. 
Brilliant. Well, it certainly sounds like you're doing amazing things for um, the area of celiac disease. Now, before we delve into this topic in more detail, it would be really great to hear what initially attracted you to the specialty of gastroenterology and specifically celiac disease, Christian? Sure. So, so I think, um, like, like with most of the things, I kind of tripped over, uh, you know, here and there, and then, and then it kind of found me. So, you know, I, I started working um, in, in, you know, as a, as an inpatient dietitian uh, on acute wards, and then started to to get exposed to some gastro patients, and started to realize that actually, you know, doing some outpatient clinics that quite enjoyed gastro, felt it was uh, very rewarding. Started. To, see more IBS patients, liver, you know, uh, got, a, got a bit of a job with a mix of both of those. Um, and then I was lucky enough to, to be one of the first dedicated gastroenterology dietitians in our hospital where we had a new post that was mainly built to support gastroenterologists um, and, and kind of make the celiac service more dietitian-led. So, and, and that's where I really found my feet. That was almost five years ago now. And, and really, you know, that, that kind of did everything for me because it was, you know, it made me realize that celiac disease is an area where we can have a huge impact. I think, you know, few people, you know, we all know that celiac disease, the only treatment's diets, but few of us recognize that how vital dietitians are there. And I think we don't promote ourselves enough. We don't show how much we can help in this area. So, you know, that really showed to me how much of an impact we can have, how we can help patients. And I always, I, th I think I've always been kind of magnetized to these areas where I, where I feel I have an impact. And then the other thing is the whole service development. I love service development. And this gave me the opportunity to develop a dietitian-led celiac service. And I've been very lucky to have such support managers that have kind of just let me get on with and supported me to keep pushing things so yeah I feel very lucky to have found these areas and found the right support essentially and Christian I'm interested are there um, other dietitians working in a, a similar role to what you're doing specifically with celiac disease across the country or is it quite unique to, to your specific hospital yeah, great question. So I'm definitely not the first, you know, running a dietitian-led celiac service. I I think I don't have the the numbers because it's hard to know, but I would probably my my guess is that there's probably about 10 to 15 services that are dietitian-led uh, across the UK, I, I would presume. And you know, it's been going there's been dietitian-led services for years, some as much as like maybe 15, 20 years, you know, some some of the innovative work was started in the early 2000s, I would say, with with this sort of clinic so so it's not new but i feel like you know it's an untapped resource essentially because a lot of the work i'm doing here i think it's not novel in that way i'm trying to promote as much as i can but but the opportunity has been there for a long time and i think as dietitians we should be much more involved in the management of of celiac disease essentially and i think these clinics sort of help you know help everybody they save costs for the nhs they help patients because we're supporting them more with 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 diet and actually we feel more rewarded because we're supporting patients in better ways Okay, so let's delve into the um, dietitian-led celiac service in a bit more detail. Um, let's start with the patient being diagnosed with celiac disease in the first instance. Mm -hmm. How does that diagnostic process happen? Does the patient go to the GP? Do they come straight to their ser your service? And how do they end up under the care of a dietitian? Sure. So, so I'd say, you know, in general terms, I think what tends to happen is because the, the first line for testing with celiac disease involves a blood test called tissue transglutaminase, then, you know, most of that will happen with the GP. Um, and then, you know, most patients, uh, adult patients, if we're talking about adult patients, a lot of them will go on to have a judino biopsy and endoscopy with judino biopsies too. We've got some criteria actually during the pandemic that some adults can be diagnosed just with blood tests if they show certain values too. Uh, but essentially what happens once they're diagnosed, whichever way they, they're diagnosed, is that, you know, the there's we've got different guidelines suggesting a few different things. And because we don't have that much evidence for dietitian input, some of them don't recommend them as much. But really what should happen is that patients see a dietitian, right? Uh, once once they're diagnosed. Now, some some patients will be managed by a gastroenterologist, others will be managed by a GP right but the they should all have access to dietitian now what we see in reality is that this definitely doesn't happen for everybody and even when you know within my hospital before our service we actually had a look at things and about 50 percent of, of people with uh, newly diagnosed with celiac disease were actually getting referred so many people don't actually get referred and i think the other challenge is that when people actually do get referred the, there's huge variability with services and many might just get one appointment with a dietitian or they might get a couple or they might just 
come to a group session. So there's not much in the way of follow up for these patients, you know, and even long term either. Whereas guidance suggests that patients with living celiac disease should have an annual follow up. A lot of them don't really get that and, and much less with a dietitian. Okay, interesting. And obviously, the the main treatment for celiac disease is adherence to a gluten free diet, which, as you mentioned, the dietitian can can really help with. So let's talk about receiving this diagnosis of celiac disease. I understand patients may be able to access gluten free staple foods on prescription. Could you share an overview of what the current prescription guidelines are across the UK for people living with celiac disease? Sure. So, so the first thing I'd say is that it it depends on where you are in the UK. So it's so it's different depending on the country. So, for example, in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, we've got a more consistent provision of products that are available on prescription to everybody, pretty much. Whereas in England, it really depends on the clinical commissioning group, or if you want the city where where that patient resides. So it's it's pretty it's a bit of a free for all, you know, if if you want to see it that way. Where in England, each city will decide whether they allocate money to prescription or not. And then, you know, for those people that do have access to prescription, for example, in England, there's less products available in terms of um, of, of the variety of products that they can have. So they'll, and they'll be able to access bread, bread rolls or flour, for example, whereas in other places like Scotland, Northern Ireland or Wales, you know, people can also access things like pasta, bix, biscuits, pizza bases, and they'll also get a higher um, amount of products available on prescription so what happens is that you know people who who can access prescription will have a certain amount of units so each unit will be a certain amount of a gluten-free product and essentially you know depending on things like age gender and a few other things you know you can access more units or or less units per month of gluten-free products but really you know in in england you'll get less units so someone with the same for example uh, demographic characteristics will will get more products in in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland compared to England, for example. So huge disparity. That seems really unfair, especially given the cost of living crisis that's affecting so many people at the moment. Why do you think that access to prescription gluten-free foods throughout the UK and even within England, from what you said, varies so much? Yeah, so so yeah, it's an absolute postcode lottery when we look at it, and and I agree. I think it's it's completely unfair to say some patients get it and some don't, just based on what people think is is suitable and what's you know you know. With all of this too, that I think a lot of what's happened is that clinical commissioning groups have looked at it at a superficial level and said, okay, we might be able to save costs here, and they might have thought actually these people get naturally gluten free products and that's it without realizing the real impact that that can have on patients so i think a lot of it has been potentially naive but you know we even have research to show that it helps with adherence it helps with many other things you know and i'm sure as we'll talk about a lot of things today it's got a huge impact on people so it's quite unfortunate that that that's happened and it seems to you know from what i've seen it seems to be getting worse at least in in england right we seem to see more cities dropping i think it might change because now ccgs are starting to merge you know in regions and it might mean that some ccgs merge because you know and one one might have prescription might one might not so that might be an opportunity to actually unify things and get more prescribing but it might also go the other way and more might drop it and what role do you as a dietitian play in in prescribing those gluten-free foods for your patients is it the role of the dietitian or does that fall to the gp christian yeah, so I would say it usually will fall to the GP. There's some places where the setup is through pharmacy too, so so the pharmacy arranges it all. There's um there's a really good example of dietitians actually doing it, and that's in Rotherham, right? So to my knowledge, it's Rotherham, and I think it's still it's still happening. Hopefully, um, and there might be other examples of it, but it doesn't tend to be dietitians. Though I think these examples where dietitians have led with it, I I think they've shown really good outcomes too. So you know, I think if we did have a few more where they were doing it, we'd be able to show a bit more about the, the benefits and it's probably running quite efficiently, I would presume. So what needs to happen to enable more dietitians to be able to prescribe these gluten-free foods? Is it that they need to do additional training? Is it that we need more research, as you just mentioned? What would help to move that idea forward, do you think? I think it's a combination of things. I think, um, yes, you know, I think research definitely is always always beneficial there. 
But I think this is a really good avenue to do it through these dietitian-led services because they tend to be very cost-effective services. So I think once actually we demonstrate, and that's again why I always has to feedback to research to showing what we're doing and, and the efficacy of, of it but we can show that that's effective then we can start to do all these other little things same as what i've done with the, our dietitian led celiac service where i'll order bloods now i'm looking to potentially start ordering dexa scans we can take on more responsibility and do things which actually saves time for doctors but actually if you think of it you know if a dietitian's prescribing it and they're educating the patient on the gluten-free diet some of them might be less reliant on on these gluten-free products if they're more educated about the diet so it's going help things run more efficiently so i think a lot of times it's that you know it's the it's a novel thing and we actually need to demonstrate and that's why these outcomes are, are really important when we can get them interesting so I, I guess it's a case of watch your space as that research um, base evolves i understand in 2018 in england the guidelines changed to no longer include gluten-free pasta, cakes, and biscuits as part of the prescription guidelines. What was the reason behind this change, Christian? Yeah, so I think a lot of the these changes were, again, to save money um, and and really to allocate a lot of that money to other medical conditions too. So, so it's a it's a tough one because you know you can see how some of that. Yes, you can say other medical condi- conditions need to also be prioritized, and we need to cost you know save save money for that. But I think also you know we have to realize the sort of impact this has for celiac disease, and and also I think we shouldn't just downplay a condition because its treatment is dietary rather than medication. And I think that's a, that's an important thing to consider, which I think might not have been considered as much with some of the decisions taken. Actually, that brings me on to a question that I was going to ask you later in the episode, but um, is celiac disease unique in having foods available on prescription or do other medical conditions requiring dietary management also have this in place, do you know? Um, so, so yeah, there's other conditions. So, so to my knowledge, um, the, the other main ones are inherent metabolic disorders. So again, you know, the, it's, these conditions can be life-threatening. Patients might need things like low-protein bread, for example, and and a lot of these things are available on prescription too. So, so I think, you know, and this, this is why I think sometimes the conversation is not about always about saying what's got more disease symptom severity it's about what what the impacts on the patients and we actually know that with celiac disease you know this diet has a huge impact on patients too so i think that's why it's really important to consider that too and 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 that's what i think sometimes doesn't get considered as much with some of these conditions and and i think that's why we really need to understand that that we can't just downplay it because it's a dietary treatment. Actually, it's sometimes some of these dietary treatments are the only therapy that people have. And when you have you have conditions where it's the only therapy, we need to give it adequate importance and funding, I think. So when those changes were announced back in 2018 regarding gluten-free foods on prescription um, and not providing pasta, cakes and biscuits, how was that received by your patients and also by yourself and other healthcare professionals? What What was the reaction like? Yeah, great question. So I think there's two, you know, two things there. One of them is in places where the prescription was completely stopped, you know, which is a, it's another area, but where it was completely stopped, obviously that was huge impact for, for patients, you know, and I, I continue to see that to this day. Uh, you know, in other, other areas where, you know, they had less options available, then for some it didn't impact it impact as much for some it was a big impact because you know there were like even things like gluten-free pasta something that is really useful for a lot of people you know and it's these are long, long you know long shelf life items that can help a lot of people so i think you know it was it was a bit mixed the biggest impact was people who couldn't access it but then having that those restrictions just make it more difficult and i think there are patients who you know it's not going to impact if they're more educated better socioeconomic status too they might be okay with having a bit less options but it's de- it definitely impacted um, quite a large cohort of patients. And we'll come on to that in a bit more detail later on in the episode. Um, I just want to go back to discussing gluten-free foods a bit more generally. Can you talk us through the, the evolution of these foods over recent years? Um, for example, I remember attending a conference, Food Matters Live, a few years ago and, and be, trying lots of samples of different gluten-free breads and just being a bit under underwhelmed with the taste and um, I've spoken to people and patients living with celiac disease who, who've spoken about that too. So how has that changed from your perspective as a clinician over the years? Yeah, well, well you know, people used to get gluten-free bread in a tin, 
you know, and that, that kind of says it all. Uh, but but yeah, I, I think it's improved significantly. I, I think it, it's, there's been a huge improvement in both, I think in both areas in, you know, in the, the texture palatability of, of some of these foods, but, but you know, also availability, you, you know, we there's been a big increase in, in gluten-free products. Also, it became fashionable to to be on a gluten-free diet. And I think that benefited in in a way, you know, sometimes it's brought some of the unwanted attention in, in, in other aspects really, but that also pushed supermarkets to get better provision of gluten-free foods, which is now backfiring a bit with with the rise of veganism too, you know, which we can talk about later. But but essentially I think it definitely has improved and a lot has changed with what they're trying to provide. I think before it was more about just getting any gluten-free product out there because there was nothing. Now it's more about offering good taste, texture, quality ingredients. So so I think it's definitely improved over time. So you mentioned um, just now that gluten-free diets have generally become quite trendy over recent years, which has obviously meant that the foods are more accessible. But talk us through some other key factors which impact the um, access and affordability of gluten-free products. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, you know, if we look at the whole trend over a long period of time, yes, the availability, I think, has definitely increased. I think we can't deny that. But I think in recent times, it's been more tricky for, for patients because of some of these other dietary trends. And really, I think that's where it comes to supermarket availability is, is you know, one of the key issues for people. So, you know, and people shop in different ways. And that's why one of the things that, that we find with a lot of people living with celiac disease is that they can't find all of the products in one supermarket, right? Because there's a there's a designated gluten-free section that might be quite small and a lot of products can be out of stock too. So they might end up shopping in different places. So this is a big, this this can be quite difficult for patients too. Then the other thing is actually where patients shop. So, you know, if you go into a corner store, you're, more, you're much less likely to find options. If you don't have a big supermarket near you, um, then some people might not have access to shopping online, for example, or actually moving to, you know, to different supermarkets for shopping. So that can be important. Then there's other, things that you know like like someone's income or their knowledge of the gluten-free diet knowing to shop outside the the gluten-free section you know and sometimes there's even other things to 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 be worried about or consider like you know looking for these yellow stickers and trying to find them outside they might not always be in the gluten-free section too so so there's a, a really big mix of things really and and we also have to take into consideration you know obviously the cost of these foods a lot of products you know that will be more expensive to produce some of these foods so it's you know impacts at many different levels yes that's interesting you mentioned just then that um it can be more expensive to produce certain gluten-free foods but surely as they've become more popular in recent years have we not seen a price drop tell me more yeah so unfortunately we haven't so you you would think right we've seen a we've seen a we're going to see a price drop because there's such a demand for them but but really I think what's happening is that you know it's still really expensive we've seen in line with inflation that's pushed the the price of raw materials too so actually everything's more expensive now for companies to produce and we know that you know a few few years ago, for example, uh, you know, like uh, the, if we compare the cost of of white bread, like a loaf of white bread, it might be three times more expensive. Now we're looking at four times more expensive. I know you said initially seven times more expensive when we're looking at the cheapest, but, you know, on average, the average white loaf of bread, for example, is four times more. So that's definitely going up. And, you know, imagine saying to, you know, anybody who buys regular bread, imagine just you know, next week, you're going to pay four times more for that. And that's just going to stay the same. That's why it's so important to talk about prescription of gluten-free products, because we're just pushing that onto people. And, you know, when, when actually, you know, when you think of it, you've got this medical condition, and then you just expect it to just pay four times more, potentially even for some products would be even more than that. So with that in mind, what do you think is the biggest challenge that your patients with celiac disease face when accessing and purchasing gluten-free foods? Is it the price, do you think, or are there other factors which um, which kind of take priority over that? Yeah, I, I would say if, you know, if I had to pick one, I would say price. You know, that's what the, the patients will mainly come with. Because of of what we're saying, you know, the food shop can be about twenty percent more expensive or, or more, even, you know. And I think the whole thing that sometimes we we fail to understand or see is that this impacts the whole household. It 
impacts the whole the whole family. I even sometimes get patients who tell me, you know, at the best of times, I was struggling to afford food for my whole family. Now I just can't justify paying for gluten-free foods because that's taken away food from my kids' plate, right? So, so it's really important to understand that actually, you know, some of this is that I would say maybe the gluten-free foods haven't increased in the last sort of year or two as much as other, you know, the cost of living, but actually people notice it much more because everything else has gone up. So, so I think that's why, you know, the, the price is, is the huge thing on um, that everyone's thinking about at the moment. Yeah. And you just gave a nice example of one of your patients who had to kind of deprioritize buying gluten-free foods for themselves, for the, for their children. What are the kinds of conversations that you're having with your patients in clinic regarding the impact of the cost of living crisis on their compliance to the gluten-free diet? Sure. And well, I'd, I'd say, I'd say the first thing I'd say is I'm definitely seeing more patients who are coming up, you know, to clinic lifted their hand and said look i'm not following the diet i just can't afford it right and i think whilst as dietitians we're always going to try to find a way to make it accessible easier i can't do that with everybody and there's patients i haven't been able to help who are just not following a diet because we again i think we have to understand that yes this can be easier to do for people who are better off from a socioeconomic point of view, who are well-educated, who have got good access to supermarkets. You know, some of the patients I see are, you know, they'll be on benefits. They'll be really struggling. They'll have other family members they have to look after, you know, and, you know, some of them might be, you know, where I work, for example, in Bradford, we've got a big proportion of South Asian patients and we need to understand that some of these products are not culturally appropriate. So it's, you know, you you can find gluten-free bread everywhere you want, but you won't find the single gluten-free chapati right in the supermarket patient has to go buy the flour and make it too so as it has a big impact and you might be looking at household where there might be 15 people in the household everyone eats gluten except that person so cross-contamination is really difficult so there's a lot of barriers there for people and we need to acknowledge that there's many of these barriers and people aren't really doing it out of choice they have really challenging circumstances yeah that's that's um very interesting with the examples that you shared and especially the lack of kind of cultural diversity amongst gluten-free products that brings me on to my next question about whether all gluten-free products available perhaps in supermarkets are nutritionally equal for example i'm sure many of us have been to the supermarket and seen the free from or the gluten-free aisle and you can now get you know hot cross buns um biscuits cakes you know lots and lots of variety um, are there certain brands or types of gluten-free products that you recommend to your patients over others? And if so, why is this, for example, is it due to, you know, the micronutrients, fortification? Tell us a bit more. Sure. Yeah. And, and as you say, now you can pretty much find anything in the gluten-free section. And that doesn't mean, and that's why with the conversations with a lot of patients is to, you know, whole fire with, with just going straight into gluten-free section, getting an alternative for everything everything you used to eat i think it's really good to have these conversations because yes you can get now a lot of products that will be high in salt high in sugar you know they they'll be they might be heavily processed and they might not have much uh, you know nutritional adequacy so so yes we have to have these conversations and i think the other thing too is you know from that there's that point of view and then there's the other one when we're trying to actually get healthier gluten-free products then actually they don't have to be fortified and this is what a lot of people don't realize that gluten-free products aren't subject to the same laws as gluten-containing products so gluten-containing bread for example, white bread has to be fortified and gluten-free bread doesn't. And actually, we've got some interesting research back in 2018 where they looked at UK, uh, a lot of gluten-free UK products, and only about a third of them were actually fortified. So it's down to the manufacturer, you know, to, to actually choose and say, right, I'm going to fortify. And within that fortification, they choose how to fortify and what to fortify it with. There's different levels of fortification they, that, that they can comply with if they want. So so really, we have to understand that, that, you know, a lot of these products can be less nutritionally adequate. But as we were talking about before, things have changed over time, right? So now the good thing is that companies are actually trying to proactively make better products. And this same research paper I'm talking about actually found that, yes, some gluten-free products actually had more fiber in them you know they had less sugar in them too so yes you can find we can find products that are actually better than the gluten containing ones and you know when we're looking at at it with with different lenses right so i think that's why it's really about talking you know we 
as we talk to patients about food labeling, it's really saying, okay, well, you know, when you're in that gluten-free section, try to go, you know, for, for fresher products, but look at, you know, look at protein, for example, protein, we tend to see that's lower in a lot of these um, gluten-free products, but try to go for higher, try to go for fiber, try to go for different mixes of different types of fiber too, you know, so, so we can talk about that to patients or try to look for foods that are fortified in a gluten-free section. So I think it's really important that we have these conversations and we don't use a black and white approach because actually some of these gluten-free products can be quite beneficial. And then again, it can be palatable, give texture enjoyment to the diet too. That's some really useful practical information that I'm sure many of our listeners will take away to, to their own patients with celiac disease. Thank you, Christian. Um, I want to now ask you about the other side of our debate, because obviously we're talking today about whether or not gluten-free foods should be available on prescription. So some people might argue that, you know, can't people with celiac disease just eat naturally gluten-free foods like rice or potatoes and therefore save the NHS money by not needing bread, for example, on prescription? So what would you say to that, Christian? Sure. I've heard that loads of times. So I'd say to anyone who says that, I'd say attempt a proper gluten-free diet, you know, even if you do it a month, but do it fully. And when I mean, when I say fully, I mean that when we when someone, you know, for people living with celiac disease, we're asking them to avoid less than a crumb of gluten for life. So what we're asking them is to avoid gluten, you know, with wheat, barley, rye, make sure that if they're having oats, that they're gluten-free for those that can tolerate it. But we're also asking them to avoid what we call cross-contact where, you know, gluten comes into contact um, with gluten-free products. So it might be like, you know, not sharing toasters. It might be checking oil, not reusing oil. They're checking all your ingredients to see if they're contaminated when, you, when you're actually doing your shopping, when you're eating out, asking questions about how your food is prepared to make sure it's not cross-contaminated in the kitchen. So really, you know, we have to understand that this plays a, that this has a huge burden on people and that just saying to them, just eat gluten-free, I'd say anyone who tries to just eat completely gluten-free for the rest of life, not really eat, you know, processed packaged foods, anything like that, you know, even things like nuts, they can be, they can have gluten in them, right? Depending on the package that you buy. So really we need to understand that. And that's why I think for anyone who says that, I think they should attempt it because, you know, the, the interesting thing is if we flip it around and say, okay, well, what does the research say? Well, we had some really interesting research back in 2014 that that compared different people living with different medical conditions. One of them was celiac disease, and they gave them a validated score to rate the burden of their condition. And interestingly enough, out of about six conditions, I think it was six to eight, more or less, um, celiac disease came second highest, and it was only second highest to end-stage renal disease requiring dialysis, right? So obviously, you know, if you need dialysis, you're hooked up to, to a machine for four hours, three times a week, you know, huge burden. We'll see that disease was second to that. It was above other conditions like diabetes, hypertension. Um, there was, there's a few other ones like, um, like IBD too. And, and really what I'm trying to say with this is that actually this is why patients find it so hard. There's no medication for, for their treatment and they just have to follow this diet and this has a huge impact it you know it can mess up interactions socially got to be thinking about food all day every day how to avoid gluten how to not get unwell so that's why we have to think not as much as symptom severity of that patient when they're acutely unwell but more of what what you know what impact does that treatment have on them and that's what i think a lot of people don't realize when they say these sorts of things and theoretically, if someone did um, just follow a naturally gluten-free diet, so eating rice, pasta, avoiding bread and, and other gluten-containing foods, presumably there'd be deficiencies you might be aware, um, concerned about? Absolutely. And, and that's why, you know, really when we're talking about celiac disease management, you know, we can never just say it's about avoiding gluten. It's about avoiding gluten, but also optimizing the diet once we do that. And what we know is that a lot of people who base their diet on, you know, rice, potatoes, for example, the, 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 they can have less calcium, less iron in the diet. And also, you know, what a lot of people do is they, you know, they might, might go for some of these naturally gluten-free foods and not actually replace fiber that, you know, because a lot of sources, for example, not a lot of wheat products can, be, can actually account for a high intake for or for a lot of fiber in people's diet or a high percentage of fiber in people's diet. So it's really important that we take this into account. And we know from research, actually, that the gluten-free diet is associated with less zinc, less folate, iron, calcium, B12, vitamin D, 
protein, fiber. And the interesting thing is, you know, there's some others, but really the interesting thing about this is that it's associated, it was, it's been associated with that regardless of people of the, you know, the cause of why, or, 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 you know, the reason why people are following the diet. So that's for people with celiac disease and other people who might not have celiac disease, which means that we can't just blame this on absorption due to celiac disease. A lot of people on a gluten-free diet will have a deficient diet in many ways. And that's why we need to educate them, need to have that variety. And actually gluten-free products can actually help people to, to get better nutritional adequacy too. We need to acknowledge that too, I think. Interesting. So all the more importance for getting a very diverse and um, balanced diet for people with celiac disease. Well, that leads me on to my million dollar question for you, Christian, which is, do we need gluten-free foods on prescription? Yeah, and I, I would say, yes, we do. And I think, you know, to to make it, you know, to make this as balanced as possible. So the, yes, there's some of my personal experience in clinic where I see patients really struggling due, due to the cost of it, right? But we actually, as I was saying before, we've got research showing that's one of the main factors associated with gluten-free adherence. And we see that, you know, in a lot of countries where there's that support for patients, it, it does work really well. And that's why, you know, even, you know, we've got a BDA policy statement when prescri prescriptions were removed and turned into postcode lottery in England, highlighting all of this evidence, right? So it even comes from the BDA too. So I think, yes, we should be having foods on prescription i think we can have you know i think we need to have consistency of foods on prescription but we also have to have a conversation of what's realistic you know and and that's why it'll be good to chat a bit about that too but you know what's realistic how can we make it affordable and doable and what do patients actually need because they might not need all this variety of of different foods but we should be at least getting some of the basics yeah, let's talk about that in more detail then. What what does that look like in reality? We talked earlier about there being so many gluten-free products available. So where do you draw the line? Obviously, in 2018, they cut back on the likes of pasta, cakes and biscuits. Mm. Um, so what foods do you think should be available on gluten-free prescriptions? Sure. I think I think there's two things that I would consider, right? So one of them, I would say, yes, you know, there, there might be people who, you know, they're from an income point of view doing well, don't actually need products on prescription, right? So, so for these people, then I'd say, right, it might be that we have the system where we consider um, income too, and it's a bit based on that. I think that's always hard to draw a line there, but it would kind of protect those that are most struggling and on the lowest income. I think these people should definitely have a access to gluten-free products and then the other one is about you know what would we give them right and i think at least at minimum we should be offering things like gluten-free flour and bread and then potentially other things like pasta or potentially you know the, the good thing is that some some of these flours like um a lot of the ones on prescription could be flour mixes which can then be used for things like chapati which is which is good right so i think at, at minimum i'd say things like uh, gluten-free bread and flour and maybe other things as i say like pasta or maybe something else and maybe a bit of you know maybe where in certain regions they've got a bit of flexibility to say something that's a bit more culturally appropriate there you know that they can prescribe to um, and bearing in mind the cost of living crisis, do you think we're heading towards a time where these gluten-free foods will only be available to those on, on lower incomes? Well, I, th I think at the moment it's not even getting there because there's a lot of people who are on really low incomes and not getting them. And, and I, I feel like the trend is at least in England, is that people just want, um, a lot of people aren't getting less and less cities are doing them. So so maybe, I, I, but I don't think that that's changing as much. So, so I don't, I haven't seen yet a city that's implementing it based on income, right? So most it's kind of like, it's either available or not for everyone. And again, that might be a realistic, you know, it might be that to make it realistic, if we were to give it to everyone, we just focus on maybe reducing a bit of the diversity or changing a few other things. I think there's multiple ways of going about it. Interesting. So it sounds like there needs to be a bit more thought given to this area um, in terms of prescriptions mm -hmm. so that so that people aren't missing out, especially given the current financial difficulties. So if there are dieticians Definitely. listening who um, work with patients living with celiac disease. Could you share some of your top tips for those dietitians who want to help patients who are really struggling with the cost of gluten-free products? Sure. Yeah. So, so I think there's, there's quite a few things that can be done, but I think it's, it's first important to acknowledge that, you know, it's good. To, I think one of the first things that's good to do is just understand that patient in front of you. Right. So I think sometimes 
it can be easy to label patients as non-compliant, non-adherent to, and assume it's choice. But I think we always need to dig deeper and understand some of these circumstances that are going in and, 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 and acknowledge them for the patient that can actually help them too. But I think, first of all, absolutely check prescription. Are they, and you know, some people that have access to prescription just don't know how to do it, right? So I think actually as dietitians, we can help them in that way, say, right, do we need to do anything? Do we need to show them? Do we need to give them resource for that? So say that's the first thing, right? If there's prescription available, we'll try and, and get them to it. Then I think as dietitians, we can always try to focus the diet more on naturally gluten-free foods. That's always going to be, you know, that's always going to be cheaper uh, for people. They're basing their diet on that. It might not be realistic for a lot of people, but actually, you know, we're, we're trying to educate them on how they can incorporate more of these foods. Then that could be easier. And a lot of the plant-based foods that we'll find in diet will be cheaper even than meat products too. And they'll get them more fiber too. So actually having these discussions about how we can maybe change some things in the diets to make it che cheaper. But I think this all comes hand in hand with the education we give the patient. It's really important that we educate them on how to avoid gluten, right? And how to actually include more things into their diet. I think what I see with most patients is because they haven't received the right dietary education, they think the diet's more difficult than it should be. And they think it's more expensive than it should and then it should be and many feel afraid to venture out of the gluten-free section they think they can only follow the gluten-free diet if they're buying most products in the gluten-free section so we can kind of bust some of those myths and educate the patient i think it's really important that we understand where the barriers are what the challenges are and help them overcome them but then i think you know it's also about giving them basic information about you know things like batch cooking freezing you know if bread goes stale you can use it for breadcrumbs potentially it's also about you know these little tips around yes you know you you you, you want to go out for, you want to find those reduced section or those labels, you know, but you might actually find some of these gluten-free products that are reduced. They're not in the gluten-free section. They're actually with all the other products that have got gluten in them. So there's these little things that we can educate patients on. And then I'd also say Celiac UK play a key role, right? So I'd say, yes, Celiac UK costs about pound 25 a month, right? You know, so there's some cost to it, but actually you've got an app where people can scan barcodes and it tells them if the food's suitable or not in the supermarket. So this can actually help them venture out the gluten-free section more and save them more than that pound 25 a month. So I think CDIQ have got a key role in, you know, educating patients, getting the right information. So I think some of these things can, I, I think, you know, all together, it depends on the patient you've got in front of you, but I hope some of these tips can, can help people. I just want to draw on one of your points that you mentioned, um, veganism. And we said earlier in the episode, yeah. we come back to this topic. So tell us a bit more about the impact that veganism and plant-based eating has had on your patients living with celiac disease. Sure. Yeah. So it's one of the, the things I most get in clinic from patients is the, a lot of them will get very frustrated because the, the, they're starting to see more and more vegan products and they're even in the free from section and it's you know these vegan products they're, they're it's not an allergen right so but they're putting them in there because i think it's because it's potentially trend you know it's getting more trendy too and then that's that's eating up into the free from section and i think not just from a gluten-free point of view you know people who are who are milk-free or have got other other you know other allergens they're trying to avoid so so a lot of people are feeling quite frustrated with that too and then you know that impacts on the availability as we were talking about but again this is one of the the wider issues is that actually you know a lot of supermarkets what they'll do they'll stock what sells right so again if gluten-free is not selling as much and vegan is selling more then they'll stock more of it and one of the problems too is that a lot of these vegan products the meat replacement they might use is wheat right so it's very it's actually pretty hard to find vegan and gluten-free products right if, if they were vegan and gluten-free wouldn't be a problem in the in the gluten-free section but a lot of patients are really struggling with that and same as it's the same as things like eating out right so so now we see you know in some places we'll see again you know vegan burger you've got all of these things whereas before they might have been gluten-free options and then they're no longer available now there's vegan options available so so these trends definitely impact people and i think that's why i i think it'd be amazing to see you know supermarkets trying to protect sections for people who need to avoid these conditions you know I, I, you know people follow gluten-free diet for different reasons don't they too but i think it's it's important to to consider these things too yeah that's that's interesting because i guess a lot of people will think oh veganism opens up many opportunities to gluten-free patients but actually you've you've just explained the other side to that argument so thank you for that I also wanted to ask you off the back of your previous answer about um, uh, the impact of cost of living crisis on gluten-free foods. 
Do food banks typically provide gluten-free foods? Is that a resource that people can tap into or not? Great question. And I'd say they usually won't, right? Um, so some, some might, yeah, but but I think, you know, a lot of these products, a lot of gluten-free things like, you know, like gluten-free bread, for example, you know, they, they can go stale quite quickly too. And, and most people don't think of donating gluten-free products. And also most people that have stuff in their household, you know, it doesn't tend to be something gluten-free that they'll provide, or if they want to buy something to donate to, it's going to be more expensive. So there's all of these, it's got a knock-on effect at every level. So yes, a lot of patients that I, uh, I've even got patients, for example, accessing food banks, you know, and they're saying to me, I just can't follow the diet. You know, they'll try to go for naturally gluten-free things, but, you know, they'll find it really hard. And that's why I think, you know, it's good to be mindful if any of us, you know, donating to food banks, can we donate stuff that's naturally gluten-free too? You know, stuff like, you know, obviously your canned pulses, these sorts of things and, and and whatever you can find there, but just being mindful of that so that we can actually support people who are really struggling too. Mm, thank you. Um, are there any resources that you would direct our dietitians listening to learn more about supporting patients with celiac disease? I'm sure. So I'd say I think the the main one I'd say is is Celiac UK. Definitely, I think they've got fantastic information resources for patients. Um, you know, the the they've created this sort of cost of living campaign, which I think is really useful for everyone to be to be aware of. And then they've got loads of videos resources there. I think the the other thing too is um, people might have heard about patient webinars too. I think they're a great resource. They share a lot of information about celiac disease, gluten free diet. So a lot of this can just help dietitians get more educated and then support patients in the right way i i do a lot so i'll if i'll be sharing quite a few things on my instagram too for celiac awareness week and there's some collaborations i've done with other people focused on the cost of living too so i'd say keep an eye out for that because that's the biggest challenge for people so i'm trying to do as much as possible and with with different people in that aspect to to make that information more accessible to both patients and dietitians so so they can be well supported Perfect. And we've linked to Christian's social media handles in the show notes so that you can have a look at that during celiac disease awareness. Um, My final question to you, Christian, is thinking ahead to the future of celiac disease management. What are your hopes and aspirations for what the future of this area might look like? So I think from from a lot of the work I've been doing and and seeing how much we can do as dietitians, I think it is more about leading the way with celiac disease, you know, and changing the management from it being mainly, you know, gastroenterologists and GPs to actually being dietitians where, you know, a lot of the stuff I do, for example, in, in the clinic I run, when patients get diagnosed, you know, some of them might not even see the doctor. They'll see me all throughout, you know, and and we can do this if we're in the right environment. So I never do this on my own. This is with a support of gastroenterologists. I can run queries through, but I'll, I'll arrange bloods, discuss them with gastroenterologists if needed. You know, we'll discuss if patients need further testing, if they've got persistent symptoms, but we're really there all along the way for the patients. So it's not a, you know, diagnosis, diet, and then off you go after two appointments. We really need to support them all the way. And when we do that, we actually create opportunities to give value to patients. And then they they see that dietitians can actually help them. Because one of the things I see with a lot of patients that I support and I support in private practice, they say, I got to the dietitian and I knew more than the dietitian by the time I got the appointment. Because I think in many services, we're just giving diet sheets to newly diagnosed patients and that's not adding much value to them. So I think it's really about being more involved. And then the more involved, the more we realize there's more opportunities to progress things, as I was saying before. So we can actually, we lead with this condition. We can do things like order blood tests. We can arrange things like DEXA bone scans. We can prescribe gluten-free products. So there's examples of all of this happening already, but we could have that more unified. And then we now have, you know, with this non-biopsy approach for adults, potentially patients might not even even need to see a gastroenterologist that are quite stable too so we can avoid appointments for secondary care save money so there's many benefits there in rejigging things and actually leading more in this condition and that's why i think we need to be doing more of this pushing pushing for this but also collecting outcomes and then publishing them in research too because if you don't publish it then when they come to do uh, when they come to create the guidelines and the bsg guidelines are probably due the last ones were 2014 so they're probably due soon they'll be doing a literature search and guess what if there's no research that's been published 
and they can't recommend it. So I think that's why it's really important that we push things forward, collect outcomes and show how much we can actually do in this condition to, to keep improving things. Well, of course, you're changing that uh, evidence base yourself, Christian, by contributing your own research to that. And clearly you're doing incredible things within the world of celiac disease. You're very much a high flyer. So what's on the horizon for you professionally in the next few years, do you think? Oh, great question. So I I don't think I've thought that I've been able to sit down to think about that one. But I would say, you know, a lot of it is I've realized that you know many people are doing a lot of things that i'm doing too but it's about i think the key difference has been collecting these outcomes too so for me i think it's really keeping pushing things with with outcomes showing what we're doing and actually feeding back to that evidence base so a lot of what i'd like to achieve is doing that at a national level and then and then at an international level too so we can actually improve celiac disease care in other countries to get more access to dietitians and actually create more funding i think this is one of the biggest challenges is actually funding and in our hospital we've been able to get this funding because we've shown actually dietitians are cost effective and i think this is one of the key things that we need to be doing to get more dietitians into these posts and then to show we can take on more responsibility you know we we can actually prescribe products we you know we get all that training too but we need to show it um with these outcomes so i think for me it's mainly doing that then another thing i'm really big on is collaboration so i love working with different people in different areas so i also work in private practice you know i've got lots of projects there going you know potentially some work with companies with other people you know presenting to so for me i think it's really about giving the most value to people not even just not only the just in the UK everywhere and just the, the only way I can do that is collaborating with different people so I think that's that's the main thing it might sound a bit vague but I've kind of that's the direction I always try to take and then things seem to fall in place really <laughs> I think you're definitely one to watch uh, in the in the area of celiac disease and um yeah it sounds like you're involved in some really fascinating and incredible research projects and um clinical work as well so congratulations on on all your achievements and Thank you so much for inspiring us all today on our big dietetic debate. Um, So thank you very much, Christian, for joining us. It was great to explore this area with you and a huge thank you to New Outra as well for making the podcast possible. If you enjoy listening to The Dietitian Cafe, please consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more health professionals. You can follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening and our next episode will be out soon.